Good afternoon and welcome to the show. Of course, for the last few days, we've been talking a lot about the allegations of racist, anti-Semitic, homophobic social media posts that were uh, allegedly made by a now former Springfield cop. He quit the force rather than uh, go through the internal affairs investigation of that. And that incident has hurt a lot of people in the community, but it's also hurt uh, the other officers who are still on the force, the remaining rank and file there, who uh, are finding themselves also tarnished by this stain on the badge. So how do they deal with that? And the union that represents them, how does it deal with it as well? Uh, we're joined this afternoon by David Amerson. He's a staff attorney for the Policeman's Benevolent and Protective Association, the union representing Springfield Police officers. And David, thanks for coming out this afternoon. Great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jim. Let's start by explaining the union's role in this. This gets a little bit complicated because obviously when you have an officer that is accused of some form of wrongdoing, you have to represent that officer's interest, but you also have to represent uh, the rest of the department as well and, and stand up for their reputation. So how, how do you balance that? Yeah, so if you allow me just to start off, you know, a few things about unions in general, because it's the exact same uh, philosophy that applies to our union. Um, any union, whether you're a cop, whether you're a state worker, you know, whether you just recently organized a union at the Starbucks you worked at, you know, that union is not some outside third party imposed on a workplace. The employees at a particular work site vote to bring a union in. They can also vote to associate with a particular union, or they can vote to kick a union out. Um, unions are democratic, uh, with a small d, meaning the members either through a direct vote or through their elected board members, there's a lot of different ways to do this, they call the shots about the union. Now, discipline... This is really, I think, key to our whole discussion. Discipline, the main difference between most unionized workers and workers without a union is the standard for discipline. So if you're unionized, you can bargain into your contract that discipline must be for just cause, meaning you have to be afforded due process. The employer has to have a business-related reason to discipline you. You have the rights to appeal to dis that discipline and so on. If you're not in a union, and this is key, you have very, very limited rights in almost every state to appeal discipline. You are what's called at will, which means your boss can fire you for any reason or no reason at all. You know, you can be fired because you're a Cubs fan and your boss is a Cardinals fan. <laughs> you can be fired because you voted for a certain political party. You can be fired because the boss wants to hire a friend and replace you. You know, it, it's what we call a moment-to-moment -moment employment relationship. So the limited protections you have if you're non-union are for discipline on the basis of a protected class. You know, that's your race, gender, ethnicity, religion, nationality, pregnancy, uh, pro-union activity. Uh, in Illinois, also gender expression and sexual orientation are protected. Now, take that framework that applies to every union, public or private, and apply that to public workers, specifically the police. So police can only be disciplined for just cause uh, if they have a union contract, which the Springfield police do, meaning that an employer has to cite to an actual work rule. So that employees have noticed that their conduct is in violation. The employer has to conduct a fair investigation. You, as the employee, get to have legal representation. You can appeal the discipline to an arbitrator, which is basically a private judge that the union and the employer mutually select together. So unions have some, you know, to answer your question finally, unions have some, though very little, leeway in deciding which discipline cases they're going to challenge. Unions are required by law to defend all of their members equally. That does not mean you necessarily condone the underlying violation, and sometimes you don't even challenge that that violation occurs. 
deterred, but rather you appeal the discipline because it may be so harsh that it goes against that just cause standard. This is similar to, say, a public defender, right? So public defenders, they can't choose to not represent someone who may have a good case just because that public defender may find that the crime they're being charged with is personally to that public defender reprehensible. Uh, Similarly, while a public defender may concede to the court that their client did commit the offense, they may have an argument to be made that the punishment's too harsh. You know, we don't give out life sentences for shoplifting, for instance. It's worth noting, and and I was really struck by this, that when this all came to light late last week, the union immediately put out a statement saying that, you know, you do have a role to to play in uh, representing the interests of an accused officer, but also making it clear you don't condone the conduct that's being alleged in this case and making it clear that that doesn't represent the values of uh, of the police department. Now, this process has been blown up a little bit because the officer in question resigned rather than go through this whole investigatory process. Uh, So I want to come back to that because I I think that's important as to what happens next. But back to the question, though, of representing an individual officer's interest, but also representing the the body as a whole here. One of the big questions I think a lot of people in the community have is if somebody on the police department is harboring these sorts of attitudes, allegedly, uh, and and that's informing what they choose to post on social media and the relationships that they're, they're forming outside the department, people are saying, how is it possible that others in the department, whether it's colleagues or whether it's the brass, didn't have any idea what was going on? Is that plausible that somebody could be doing these sorts of things allegedly and not have it be known by his co-workers? Yeah, I, I think it is. And that is obviously a criticism that's come up a lot in the public, and not just this case and a lot of other cases that are similar. You know, how could everyone not have known? And, you know, I think it on its face sounds like a pretty good answer, or, you know, uh, question or even allegation. However, you know, police, uh, it's not like it's depicted in the movies where they all get together. Uh, they're all very, very close with each other. Even if they were, you know, you don't know what the personal lives of your coworkers, you don't know what they're going home and doing, anyone. You know, you don't know, say, uh, if your coworker's having family problems, if your coworker uh, has this private life out there. Now, uh, he even stated, I think, the officer in question, I, I can't talk too much about the case because of ethical concerns, but one of the tweets that I think most of is public knowledge is that he would be fired if anyone found out about this. So, you know, he, he knew that uh, it was likely going to be reported, that he would have been turned in, and he would have met with swift justice because of it. How, how does an investigation go forward from here now that he has resigned? He is not a police officer, doesn't have police powers at this point. I know they're talking about decertification. We'll come back to that in a moment. But what happens now in an investigation? Do you play any role in representing this former officer? Or are you now involved in terms of representing other officers and what they may or may not have known about all of this? Well, yeah, so if... If an, invest- an internal investigation sprawls and, and implicates other officers, then yes, we would same. We use the same mode, right? That they are afforded due process, that the charges have to be substantiated, and that they have legal representation. Um, and you know, just to talk about resignation, if I can just talk about one big misconception about what happens with any public sector union, is I think a lot of people confuse in their minds the difference between an internal investigation that may result in employee discipline and say, a criminal investigation or even a decertification investigation. So um, discipline is generally handled internally. It's basically just a boss saying, you violated one of our rules. So the harshest penalty a boss can impose on you is termination.
discrimination, ending that employee-employer relationship. I often hear people say, you know, the reason a police officer wasn't found guilty in a criminal case is because of the police union and their contract. So again, a union can only negotiate the discipline process, the internal discipline process, full stop. Nothing in a police contract can shield a police officer from criminal liability. You know, we bargain with the police department. That's who the employer is. The state's attorney is the one that brings criminal charges. So there's nothing I could ever write in a contract that binds the state's attorney, this outside agency. In that same vein, any criminal conduct by a police officer or even allegations of excessive force is not investigated internally. It's investigated by the Illinois State Police. Um, So... With that in mind, you know, an officer, there's a host of reasons why maybe a union would recommend to an officer they resign or an officer may resign. You know, if an officer resigns, it only impacts that discipline case, okay, and nothing else. You know, remember that most, the most an employer can do is terminate your employment, right? There's no, you can't flog him in the town square or anything (laughs) like that. It's very similar to, say, a guilty plea. Uh, It terminates the employment relationship, and it it has no impact on their pension. It has no impact on outside investigations or decertification investigation. It just impacts the status of their employment relationship with the department. Talking with David Amerson, staff attorney for Policemen's Benevolent and Protective Association, the union, the union representing Springfield police officers. So as a now former officer, does, does Aaron Nichols have any right to union representation in whatever uh, proceedings come forward from here, including decertification? So uh, I think right's a pretty strong word. You know, unions can handle that on a case-by-case basis. Now, once you're terminated as an employee, generally your relationship with the union stops too. The union represents you for the purposes of employment. Now, that being said, uh, if there was a potential to bring an officer back or we think that decertification uh, is going to get it wrong or... uh, Something along those lines, yes, will represent an officer through that process. We don't have a hard and fast rule about it. And has any decision been made about whether or not to extend any representation to him in whatever proceedings? Uh, are? I think the most I can say is that we haven't had that discussion yet. But again, that's uh, traipsing on like internal union processes. So I'm sure. legally bound not to talk about it. Uh, one of the things that we've been inquiring about is internal affairs investigations of this particular officer and whether there were any red flags at any point along mm-hmm. the way. And the official response from the city is we have no records that are pertinent to, to that request. Now, I, I have not gotten an answer yet as to whether that means he's never had an IA investigation or if it's just something that happened long enough ago that the records have been purged. What's the procedure there in terms of how long are internal affairs records maintained before they're ultimately destroyed and, and just aren't available to, to access anymore. Well, as of right now, uh, departments may not destroy their records. And th- that's a result of the Safety Act, the police reform bill that passed last year. Prior to that, there's a, there was a wide uh, variance among departments and how long they would retain it. Usually they would rely on kind of a civil law, uh, you know, how long you have to maintain documents, what's good practice for maintaining documents. But right now, going forward, nothing can be destroyed. You know, and I can't say, uh, I think that's one of the most shocking things about this case, and perhaps a wrinkle to how people may view it, is it didn't seem to bleed into police work. You know, there were no uh, IA investigations. There were no citizens' complaints. And the Springfield Police Department, for almost seven years now, has been wearing body cams, right? So, you know, people do lead second lives, and they some are often able to insulate that from their public persona or their job. 
One of the things that's going to happen now is a review of all of the uh, past arrests, or at least those for which there are still records available uh, for this officer to make sure everything was done by the book or there aren't any big red flags uh, about that. Uh, does the union play any role in that? Uh, and uh, Because that may also impact other officers who may have been involved with this officer in making some of these arrests. So, no, we wouldn't play a direct role in the actual investigation. You know, it wouldn't be appropriate. Usually the union is more reactive. So if uh, it came to light that maybe another officer assisted in arrest that now looks like it might have been a violation of departmental policies, then, of course, we go back to the due process standard. There'd have to be a fair investigation. There's going to be an interrogation. They get uh, legal representation, and they have a right to appeal it to an arbitrator. Uh, you mentioned this briefly, and I think it's a big source of frustration for a lot of people, the, the notion that someone could potentially have done things like this, have engaged in this sort of, of rhetoric while serving as a police officer, and yet be able to resign, walk away, collect a full pension sure. at, at some point. Um, and what you're saying is is that you know this is not a, a crime. People have free speech rights, or even sure. though you may find the speech to be repugnant. Uh, so that would not in any way impact this officer's pension. No. So, I mean, if, if the state's attorney or, I mean, if they make a criminal case, that's the narrow pathway to uh, forfeiting your pension. And, and, you know, this is important for especially the, I, I guess, listeners in this area. You know, I grew up in Springfield, too. I don't think there's anyone in this city, no one listening right now from this area that doesn't have at least a family member that's in public service. It's the number one employer. Uh, so these are the general rules that apply to everybody around here. I mean, it's the core of our economy. Um, and so pensions are often seen by a lot of people as some kind of like privilege or a bonus or uh, even a, a gold watch that you get for a good job. Uh, but really what it is, is you're receiving payment for services already rendered. Okay. The, the, at some point you decided instead of taking wages that you'll have a portion of your wages directed to this fund that'll be matched by the employer. And you know you just can't take it away. Similar to if you fire someone, you can't go into their bank account and take away wages that they were already paid. Right. So I know that that is a source of frustration for people, but uh, it's for services already rendered, yes. Uh, finally, the the big question that I think is on the entire community's mind is, how do we ensure this doesn't happen again? You can't look into somebody's heart. You can't know what's going on inside their head. You have right. to base it on their actions. But uh, we, we want to be able to trust that the people that are wearing a badge and, and carrying a gun uh, are not harboring these sorts of views uh, about the people that they are supposed to be uh, interacting with and, and are there to serve and protect. How what what has to happen going forward from a union's perspective uh, to regain that trust and, and make sure that we don't run the risk of seeing this sort of thing happen again? Well, I, I think from the union perspective, because, you know, a lot of unions, especially police unions, like to engage in kind of a, a more combative uh, tone in response to these types of issues. And they do that for what I would consider things that don't really benefit their members' terms and conditions of employment, which is the core of what we do. You know, they'd rather pick a fight on Facebook. Maybe that helps that union board get reelected. Maybe it shores up donations to their political fund, whatever reason. Okay. I think what a, any honest public sector union has to do, they realize that they serve the public, that we're beholden to the public, uh, but that, you know, 
public opinion is uh, it shifts, it goes up and down. I mean, listening last week to your show, you have people call in that express some very uh, what I would consider, you know, um, bad views on this type of issue. So uh, the best thing that the public can do, if you have a problem with police, right? It's very similar to what the teachers went through about 20 years ago with No Child Left Behind. You have all these problems in society. You know, you might have children that are abused at home, uh, malnourished, coming from a bad home, and this results in bad educational outcomes. But who do we blame? Who do we enact legislation to target? Teachers, right? Because that's who we see. That's the tip of the spear. Similarly with police, there's a whole host of reasons that leads to criminal activity, you know, starting with the fact that the people say that these are the criminal statutes that we want to enforce. You know, those aren't, our police aren't judge dread. They don't get to make the law up as they go. Uh, And there's a whole host of reasons that lead to it. But because that police officer is the one on the street with the body cam or people have their cell phone videos, that's the one we focus on. So I think the first step for any union is just explaining the process so that kind of demystify it for people so that they don't you know, think that this is all uh, non-transparent, that this is happening behind closed doors, that there's something shady going on here. You know, we have the exact same rights and obligations as every other public employee. Finally, uh, uh, how's morale in the department with all of this? Yeah, well, that, that's hard to say. You know, um, again, there's a wide diversity of views of our membership, but I would have to say on this issue, the members are, you know, universally appalled at uh, this behavior. They understand how poorly it reflects, and they also understand that it creates a rift between them and the community, which leads to safety issues, which leads to work performance issues. So, uh, you know, however, uh, we've had a pretty good relationship uh, we've uh, we've built over the years with the new chief, uh, and we're entering into contract negotiations. We're very hopeful um, that we can begin moving forward. And actually, you know, a lot of people approach the community and say, we're going to try to do good. Here's my card. Call me time and they never show up about it. We actually want to come up with real solutions to heal this rift, uh, you know, in a way that both protects the officer's rights, but at the same time gets stuff done for the community that they want to see happen to be the kind of public servants that they want. David Amerson, staff attorney with the Policeman's Benevolent Protective Association. Thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. We appreciate your perspective on it. Thank you, Jim.